Daniel chapter 4 is where we're at today as we continue our series through the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, grab them, turn there. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Some of you in this room have uh, grandparents or possibly great-grandparents that did things that if you observed them would have seemed very strange to you. Maybe you did or, or did not notice as a kid, but had you caught them, you'd have been like, what, what is going on? Maybe, maybe it was that they had hid cash all over the house and sock drawers and under mattresses and under floorboards or wherever. Uh, perhaps you noticed, uh, I have a friend that this happened to, his grandfather put cash in, in mason jars and buried it in the yard. All right, he, sung, he thinks there's probably still some out there somewhere that, that got lost. Uh, my grandparents did this a little differently. They invested all of their money in antiques. And so my grandpa owned a uh, 54 classic Ford. He owned a T-model Ford. He uh, had a lot of old antique guns, a lot of old antique guitars. And anything else that he thought held value, he bought those things and held his value in that. Now, why did our grandparents or great-grandparents do this? It's because they lived through the Great Depression or the aftermath of the Great Depression. These people had placed their trust in banks and systems. They put their money in them. They thought everything was fine. Everyone puts their money here. And then one day the market crashed and overnight all their money was gone. Everything was gone. And in an instant, their world changed. And even when things began to return to normal, and the banks came back, and the banks were backed by the government, our grandparents and great-grandparents never trusted banks the same way ever again. It forever changed how they viewed money. They placed their trust in something that burned them, and they were committed to never making that mistake again. And so they put their money in jars and buried it in the yard, put it on their floorboards, put it somewhere else. Because they didn't want to go through that difficult time again. They trusted something that they sh- that at the time they shouldn't have. Our story this morning is one of how great humility was forced upon a king because he too placed his trust in the wrong things. He too placed his trust in the wrong things. Chapter 4 really serves as King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in many ways. He tells about a dream that he had, a dream about a giant tree that reaches all the way up to the heavens and could be seen across the entire earth. The tree had beautiful leaves, it had lots of fruit, and it fed everyone. But then, in the dream, an angel comes down from heaven and says to chop the tree down and to lop off its branches, but to leave the stump and bind the stump with a band of iron and bronze. And then the vision seems to change from a tree to a man. And the angel says, and let the man get wet from the dew of the heavens and let him hang out with the beast of the fields and let his mind be changed from that of a man to a beast for seven years. And then verse 17 says, the reason for all this, that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will set over it the lowliest of men. And and then the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, calls upon Daniel. He has this dream, and he calls upon Daniel, one of his most trusted wise men, uh, because Daniel in the past has interpreted dreams for him, and he knows Daniel can do this, and so he calls for Daniel to interpret this dream. He asks the meaning of the dream. 
Now let's read together Daniel's response to the dream in verse uh, 20, chapter 4, verse 20. The words of our God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, say this. Daniel says, The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in those whose branches the birds of the heavens live. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and it reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time have passed over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded, to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. From the time that you know, the heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. That there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and it gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of the heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. This is the word of the Lord. Daniel tells the king that the interpretation, this tree represents his kingdom. All that he's built. It's big. His kingdom is vast. His kingdom reaches to the ends of the earth. It's great. But that God is going to chop down this kingdom and that he, that he is going to lose it. That not only is he going to lose his kingdom, that no longer is he going to be king, but that he's going to lose his mind. And he's going to act like an animal for seven years. He's going to lose his mind and act like an animal for seven years. And at the end of that, he will then know that God alone is sovereign. That God alone is in control. And Nebuchadnezzar hears this, and he must either quickly disregard it or forget, because it does not take long for this word of judgment to come true. Daniel pleads with him at the end and calls him to repentance, calls him to to change his ways that God might show him mercy and spare him this judgment. But the king forgets, or the king is not worried, and he goes up onto the roof of his palace, and he views all of his kingdom. And he beholds all that he has made, and it fills him with pride at how great he is. And he says, look what I have done. Look how great I am. Look what I have made. Look what I have accomplished. 
and immediately God steps in, takes King Nebuchadnezzar's mind from him, and this great and mighty and powerful king is reduced to acting like an animal. And for seven years, he lives outside with the animals, eating grass like a crazy person. I think this whole story can be summed up in, in the words of Jesus, uh, in the words of, of, of really all over the Bible where he says, uh, what profits a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What profits, a whole, uh, what profits a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? King Nebuchadnezzar knew the truth. It was not that he was, he, he, he was foreign to this. He knew the truth. He had seen Daniel and his friends eat vegetables and just water and yet still grow strong and been given incredible gifts to interpret dreams, even to know his dream without being told what it was. He had seen God come down and, and save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a fiery furnace. He had seen God literally in the fire and them in there not being burned. He knew that their God was true and was real and he was powerful. He knew that what they would have told him, that he was the creator of all of the world, that he was sovereign. And yet, still, King Nebuchadnezzar did not place his trust nor give thanks to God Almighty. Instead, he put his trust in himself. Instead of putting his trust in God, he put his trust in himself. And in the end, he finds that he is not sufficient. He relied on himself. In the end, he learned that he is not enough. The story is a powerful warning to us. It's a powerful warning, a warning we see throughout the Old Testament that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I want to show you three ways that King Nebuchadnezzar was trusting in something other than God. And I hope that you will see that these, these three ways that Nebuchadnezzar trusts in something other than God are three ways that we are probably often very much like him. We... As Christians often will say, you know, our faith and our trust is in Jesus. But deep in our hearts, we betray that truth. We compartmentalize our lives or we trust Jesus for maybe spiritual things or when we're in a pinch. But we trust ourselves and we trust other things far more often than him. Our mission as a church, we say, is to make Jesus essential. That is in every sphere and every aspect of our lives, lives, every category, we want to bring our life under the domain and control and rule of Jesus and make him the most important thing in every area of our life. Well, in order to do that, that means we've got to take inventory of our lives, right? And we must find those places that are true in every one of our lives where we have, we have not made him essential and we've not trusted Jesus alone in that area and instead have trusted something else. So three areas, three things. Number one, we must not put our trust in our ability to control things because only God is in control. We must not put our trust in our ability to control things because only God is in control. Remember the reason the angel gives for this judgment coming upon the king. Verse 17, he says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. He rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. The king needed a reminder of who was really in charge? Who was really the king of kings and whose kingdom really was the greatest? Who really was sovereign? You see, the king had built such this massive kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar built this massive kingdom. 
He had such big army. He had so many riches and wealth. Every other nation paled in comparison to his and to his majesty. And so he began to think wrongly that he could do whatever he wanted to. He was the biggest, most powerful man in all the world, so he could do whatever he wanted to. He thought he was in charge. He thought he was in control. He thought he was sovereign. And God's reminder to him is simple. You're not. You're not in control. And in a moment, in the blink of an eye, God takes everything away from him to show him who's really in control. This serves as a warning to kings, to rulers, to political leaders that you serve at the pleasure of Jesus. If you have any sort of authority, any sort of role, any sort of uh, uh, in charge of something, you serve at the pleasure of Jesus. You are not in control. And you do not have your post because of your bloodline, uh, because of your political savviness. You don't have it because you're so great. You don't have it because you're so loved. You are there because for whatever reason, God saw fit to put you there. And for the record, God placing a leader or using a leader is by no means an endorsement. As if God placing that leader there means that he's good. It just may simply mean that God needs to use this broken vessel for his purpose. Just like he raises Pharaoh up in Egypt, that he might show his power over him. Just as he raised this Nebuchadnezzar up over this pagan kingdom. God raises up leaders for his own purposes. It's not an endorsement. But it is, this is not just a warning to leaders and politicians and kings and queens. It is a warning to us. It is a warning to us. You are not in control. You are not in control. Many of us in this room view our lives as self-made. Many of us in this room did not come from very much. We're self-made. We didn't inherit a fortune. We were not given the things we have. Uh, or the things that we've made, we worked hard for them. Maybe we went to school and we studied hard, we worked hard, we were smart, we made wise choices, we took wise risks, and the things that we have, the things that we've done in our minds are our accomplishments because we've worked hard. But let us not be so foolish as to think that we got where we are on our own. None of us are self-made. Maybe you had uh, great parents who pushed you. Maybe you had someone give you advice along the way that was crucial. Maybe you were given a chance at a job you weren't quite ready or qualified for, but that sets you up. Maybe you just got a little lucky here and there, and you were able to work hard because your body worked, and your body didn't give out. None of us are self-made. You did not get where you are on your own. None, not only were there hundreds and probably thousands of factors that helped you get to where you are, but God was behind every one of them. You are not in control. God has helped you get where you are. You see, everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. Our talents, our functioning brains, the opportunities that came our way, all of them mean nothing apart from God's provision. Everything we have is a gift, and none of them mean anything apart from God's provision. Be careful that you do not begin to trust in your abilities to achieve something. If we believe that we are the sole cause of our success, what will we do, what will we trust in, where will we turn when we lose it all? 
because just as you have worked hard and been smart and done so many things to get where you are now, despite hard work and despite being smart and all those things, you can lose them in a moment. You can do all the things right and still lose everything. A tornado can come and destroy everything you own. A drunk driver can T-bone you in the middle of the night and take your life. A global pandemic can come in and shut your business down. A corporate takeover can come into your company and you can lose your job, not because you're not qualified or the best person there, but simply because they want their own people. Everything can be taken away from you in an instant. Because virtually everything is out of our control. You can control your actions. That's really it. Everything else is out of your control. We can never have enough, do enough, or know enough to actually be in control of our lives. This great king, King Nebuchadnezzar, went from being all-powerful king in the world, the largest kingdom in the world, to having all this power. He went from that to not even having power over his own body. The greatest of human powers is far more fragile than I think we would care to admit. So yes, we should work hard. Yes, we should try to be as smart as possible. Yes, we should build. We should, we should see everything as a gift from God and work hard and do those things and build great businesses and build great wealth and all these things, knowing that we play but a small role in getting it. And we need to thank God daily for the things we have, knowing we are not in control, and if he chooses to take them away, they're gone in an instant. None of our, none of, nothing is ours to begin with anyway. It's all a gift from him. The second thing we see, we must not put our trust in human wisdom because only God is all wise. We, not only do we not put our trust in control, but we don't put our trust in human wisdom because only God is all wise. You see, you might see the folly in thinking that you are in control. You might understand that. You might think, yeah, Brent, you're right. We don't have control over things. Most things in our life are out of our control. You might understand that. You might understand that everything is a gift. But maybe you fall into King Nebuchadnezzar's second trap. Not only does he put his trust in control, but he puts his trust in human wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar surrounded himself with wise men. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a full court full of magicians and uh, astrologists and thinkers who all came to weigh in and give input on decisions and kingdom matters, who came to give wisdom and interpret dreams and to read the stars and all sorts of things, seeking to give the king wisdom to help him make the right decisions and to have security through knowledge. And like Nebuchadnezzar, we can easily believe that superior knowledge and wisdom will save us from the insecurities and fragility of the world. Just think for a moment of the stock market. I have a good friend in this room who works for a financial institution, particularly people's investments, and every single day he's on the phone with clients asking him, when do you think the stock market's going to go back up? Should I pull everything out now and wait for it to hit bottom, and then when it hits bottom, put it back in? How long do you think this will last? Do you think we're going to do a recession? Is it going to go down much further? Do you think we're going to get back to where we were? Do you think it's going to go higher than where we were? And he has to sit there and listen to all of these questions, and they want special information, right? They want kind of special information. They want wisdom. They want knowledge. They think if they can get the inside scoop from this guy, if they can have his expert analysis, they'll beat the market, they'll make money, they'll weather the storm, they'll stop losing money. 
They'll make money, and so they ask all of these questions. And my friend, like the rest of the world, doesn't have a clue. Just has to listen and go, bro, I don't know. I don't know. Has no idea what's going to happen. He doesn't have any special knowledge. No one does. No one knows what's going to happen. And it's not just with money. Every year, professional teams enter the draft thinking that if they can just get the right quarterback or the right player or the right head coach, everything will turn around. And so they spend money on analytics. They send scouts to watch every game. They obsess over height and arm length and speed and hand size and jump height and every little thing. Because if they can just get the right information, they can get the right person. If they get the right person, they'll win championships. But you know what? Most number one drafted quarterbacks don't work out. The most successful quarterbacks are picked later in the draft. They are the ones that all the conventional wisdom wouldn't have picked first. Tom Brady, I have to reluctantly say, is the greatest quarterback of all time, and he was drafted in the fourth round. Kurt Warner was, was bagging groceries. Having the right knowledge doesn't give us all the right answers. More often than not, the conventional wisdom is wrong. And that's true in every area of our lives. Years ago, no one would have suggested that you go buy Bitcoin. No one would have said to do that. It was a bad investment. But if you had, if you put $100 in Bitcoin, you'd have made thousands of dollars. And then it caught up, and Matt Damon's on commercials, and everybody's on commercials. Buy Bitcoin. Buy, buy all this. And if you did, you've lost a lot of money. The point is, human wisdom is so limited. We're always playing catch-up, right? It's easy to look, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You can look back and go, yeah, that would have been the right choice to make, but no one said do that. Our best knowledge, our best wisdom is at best an educated guess. And that's why the most uh, savvy investors say, don't try to play the market. You wait it out. Put your money in. Leave it through the ups and downs. Because they know they can't predict what's going to happen. And so they play the odds and they play the percentages. And that's true in all of our life. We can't predict what's going to happen. We have no special knowledge to know what's around the corner. You could take a new job with a massive pay raise only for the company to go bankrupt because a pandemic hit the world and you lose your job. You could eat all of the right foods, exercise every day, you know, purge all of the toxins from your body and still get cancer and die at 50 years old. Our best wisdom isn't very wise. It's not very great. But God's is. God doesn't just see what's right in front of him like we do. He sees all past, all present, all future. He sees every chess piece, every possible move, and he doesn't have to guess at probable outcomes. He knows exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and why it's going to happen. He knows what storms are coming for your life, and he's seen the light at the end of the tunnel. He knows how you're going to get through them. And in moments of anxiety in our life where I wasn't sure of where to turn, or moments of anxiety in my life where I didn't know what the right decision was, I had a professor tell me, he said, Brent, you know God is powerful, but remember he is just as powerful as he is wise. Trust him. Trust him. He's just as wise as he is powerful. The king believed, Nebuchadnezzar believed, that his wise men could keep the bad things from happening. He trusted their wisdom and it puffed him up. It made him proud. And it made him blind. Blind to the God who is all wise and who would have steered him correctly if we'd only been willing to listen. Let us not make the mistake of the king. So often the things God calls us to, so often the things in our lives that God is oppressing upon you, calling you to, moving you to, seem foolish to the world, do they not? 
God calls us to give more generously than financial advisors would advise. He calls us to go to dangerous places where physical harm is likely, where disease is likely. He calls us to lay down our lives to serve others. He calls us to love our enemies, to forgive those who have hurt us, and to live for and to give everything for a kingdom that we cannot see with our physical eyes. The world looks at that and says, that's foolish. But we know that God is all wise. And when he calls us to do something, even when it seems wrong to the world, we know where true wisdom lies. The world has proven that their wisdom is but an educated guess. Their wisdom has holes in it, but our God holds the future in his hands. Who do you want to trust? Don't place your trust in human wisdom. Place it in God who is all wise. Third, the third problem of Nebuchadnezzar, the third thing he trusts in, he says, we, we must not put our trust in accumulation, in accumulation, because it will never be enough. We must not put our trust in accumulating things because we will never get or have enough. When we know that we will never be able to have control, and when we know that we will never have enough wisdom in our calculated guesses, what we often turn to is building up security. We want to hide behind a great big wall. And so we accumulate all that we can. We want to get while the getting is good we, in order to weather future storms. We store up now for the winter is coming. We go into hibernation mode. We think that if we can amass enough money, amass enough favors, amass enough credibility, amass enough goodwill, enough friends, then we will be able to weather the storms when they come. Like King Nebuchadnezzar who goes onto the roof to survey all that he owned, all that he had accomplished, Look, look at what my hands have made. Look at all that I have. He did that in order to feel safe because he thought to himself, I'm so great. I've got all this stuff. Nothing can touch me. What, what army could come against me? What economic depression could hurt me? So too can we find our safety and security and our trust and how much we have built up and how much we have in savings. The problem is no one can ever amass enough to protect themselves from the troubles of life. No one can ever amass enough to protect themselves from the troubles of life. There are countless stories of people who have had everything. Millionaires who have lost it all. Hedge fund owners who have tanked because they had a sure investment that ended up failing. Today, someone can steal your identity and bleed you dry before you know it. A natural disaster can, can take over uh, overnight and wipe out everything that you own. So many things can happen and no matter how much you have in store, it won't matter. And the bigger problem we face is that the more we accumulate, the more we have, the more frantically we try to cling to it. You see, we heap up accomplishments and stuff only to learn that we're building a mountain out of marbles. We are building a mountain out of marbles and one wrong move can send it tumbling down and so we cling to it. We put our trust and our security in it. And we end up being like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Remember Gollum, how he's, he's got the ring, the one ring to rule them all. And what does he say? It's my precious. It's mine. He doesn't want anyone to take, take it. No, look at him. He holds it to it tight, right? It's his. And if he has the ring, he'll be okay. And don't we do that with our, our savings account? Our 401k. Oh, if I, as long as this is okay, I'm okay. As long as I have this dollar amount, I'm okay. We think it will deliver us. 
What's really amazing is that the poorer we are, the less we hang on to our wealth. When you're poor and you don't have much, you don't have any other option but to trust the Lord, right? That's all you got. You got, you got nothing else to trust in. You trust the Lord and mac and cheese. Let's go. Not ramen noodles, that stuff's gross, mac and cheese. You, you just trust the Lord to get you through, right? That's all you got. But the easy temptation is that when you, when you get more, when you have a lot, you stop trusting the Lord like you did in those early days, and you start trusting the bank account. My security is in the number that I have in that account. A good friend of mine and I were talking some years ago, and he told me how easy it was for him to give 10% of his income to the church when he didn't have very much. It was easy, he said. He said, but the, the higher he rose on the corporate ladder and the more promotions he got and the more that he made, it was harder and harder for him to continue to give at the same percentage level. He had more. He was more comfortable, yet it was harder to give and to be generous. Why? Because he began to find his security, not in the Lord, but in his accumulation of things. Studies have shown that the more Christians earn, the less percent of their income they're likely to give. Isn't that fascinating? The more Christians earn, the less they give. Why is that? It seems that the higher we climb on our mountain of marbles of accumulation, the more tightly we hold on. The more we hold on, that, that mountain of marbles won't fall over. It reveals that deep down our ultimate trust is not in Jesus' provision. It is in our stuff. What will protect me? What will save me? Not Jesus. It's my stuff. And because of how tightly we cling, it would seem that no matter, no matter how high the mountain gets, no matter how much stuff we get, it actually never makes us feel more secure. Isn't that the ironic thing? Like it, it never makes you feel more. You think the bigger the mountain gets, the more secure you'll feel. But the bigger it gets, the more you cling to it and never feel safe. You know, there was a time in my life that if I had $100 in my savings account, I felt like nothing could stop me. I got $100. <laughs> Bring it on, world. If today I had $100 in my savings account, I'd be freaking out. I'd lose my mind. I'd go in panic mode. What I have found to be true in my own life is the more I have, the more I have, the more I feel like I must have to feel secure. The more I have, the more I feel like I must have to be secure. And even when I have more, I never truly feel secure. Because deep down I know the truth that no amount of accumulating anything is ever going to make me feel safe when trouble comes. Only Jesus can. And all of these things, we are placing our sufficiency in ourselves. Placing our trust in ourselves. And our ability to control, and our ability to be wise, and our ability to amass enough things to feel safe. And when we are not sufficient to do anything because we aren't in control, we aren't wise, and we cannot protect ourselves no matter how much we store up, what happens? Sometimes we have to learn the hard way. Sometimes, like Nebuchadnezzar, we've got to learn the hard way. Sometimes God has to humble us in order to wake us up, to open our eyes to the truth that everything we have is a gift. And God alone can hold us up, and God alone can keep us safe, and God alone can keep us secure. God alone can promise safety and actually deliver. Everything else promises safety, and it's a lie, it's a false promise. God can promise safety and deliver. We forget sometimes that God, out of his love, needs to humble us to open our eyes to see the truth. See, finally, sometimes God must remove every false security from our lives in order for us to trust him alone. 
Sometimes God must remove, out of love, remove every false security from our lives in order for us to trust him alone. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Grace cannot come to the proud. Grace can only come to the humble because only the humble know that they need grace. And if you are proud, if you are confident in yourself and securing yourself, if your trust is in yourself, you do not think you need grace. It's the reason Jesus said he did not come to call the righteous, but those who are sick, because those who are sick knew they needed a doctor. So how does God deal with proud people, with those who trust in themselves? In order to get them grace, he must humble them so that they see their need for it. What he does is he removes everything that is keeping you from putting your trust in him. The only thing that can actually hold you up, him. Removing everything from someone's life seems harsh, seems impulsive, seems unloving. But it's the most loving thing that God could do. So God in his love removes everything from Nebuchadnezzar. He takes away his kingdom, his wealth, his health. He takes away his wise men, his power, his control. His security, his accumulation, he takes it all away and sends Nebuchadnezzar to be a madman, not in control of his own functions, to be an animal living outside for seven years. He removes every, every false security from Nebuchadnezzar's life for seven years. And after the seven years is over, God gives Nebuchadnezzar his mind back, and he gives him his kingdom back, and he gives everything back to him, and he actually gives him more back. And it's God's way of showing him that everything you have is mine to give. And I gave it to you because I chose to. And you lost it because I took it away. And you have it back because I restored it. And God's work had the desired effect in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Because the chapter ends like this in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the, t- at the same time that my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, my counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar gets his mind back and he praises God. He places his faith and his trust in God. He has his kingdom back, but no longer does he trust in himself and his kingdom, but realizes that all that he has is not the work of his own hands. It is the gift of God. And we learn a few things from his response. Number one, we learn that God loves sinners. We learn that God loves sinners. Guys, Nebuchadnezzar was not a good dude. He was a vile, wicked man. He killed people for pleasure. He tortured them for pleasure. He worshipped idols. He was a bad dude who was taking over other countries and bringing them back as slaves. But God loves bad people. God loves sinners. 
And this is really good news for us, because though we like to think ourselves pretty good, we are no better than King Nebuchadnezzar. We are sinners too. And the Bible says that our best works are filthy rags. And the best news in the world for us today is that God loves sinners, and that means he can love us. It means he does love us. It means that he doesn't wait around for you to clean up your life. It means he doesn't wait around for you to get your act together. It means he doesn't wait around for you to to straighten up. It means he takes you as you are, dirty, broken, and all. Number two, there is no heart too hard or too far gone for God to redeem. There is no heart too hard or too far gone for God to redeem. Nebuchadnezzar knew the truth. Remember? He knew Daniel. He knew Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He had seen them in the fiery furnace. He had seen the God come down, Jesus come in the fiery furnace. He knew all these things, yet his heart was not changed. He never changed. He never trusted in Jesus. It wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar needed a miracle. It wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar needed to see some big, powerful thing. He'd already seen it multiple times. He needed to learn that it was his stuff that couldn't save him. He didn't need to see how powerful God was. He needed to see that he wasn't powerful. He needed to see that that he couldn't save himself, that only God could save him. Some of you in this room, you have friends and family who are far from God, and it grieves your heart. And you feel like there is nothing that you could ever say or do that will get them to turn their minds or hearts away from themselves, away from the things they trust in and trust in Jesus. And it's probably true that there is nothing you can say or nothing you can do that will do that. But that is not to say that there is nothing God can do. And so our job may simply be to pray, to share the gospel and to pray. Because God takes the hardest of hearts and he makes them flesh. He takes the hardest of hearts and he makes them mush and listen. God takes terrorists like the Apostle Paul, killing Christians. And in a moment, changes his heart. God can take the hardest of sinners and turn them and humble them turn them to himself. And so let us pray that God would soften those people's hearts because he can. Three, sometimes the only way up is down. Sometimes the only way up is down. Sometimes for God to get our attention, for it to, to save us, he has to take everything else away. He took the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar from him. He took Paul's sight from him. What might he have to take from you to wake you up? What might he have to rip from, your, from the clutches of your clenched fists? For him to have to wake you up to realize the thing you're clinging to has no power to save you. Has no power to redeem you, no power to deliver you. It only gives false promises. What are you trusting in that is keeping you from trusting in Jesus? For some of you, for some of you that's like your ultimate trust, right? Like, like some of you in this room, you're, you're lost. You, you're not a believer. You're not trusted in Jesus. You're not saved. And you, you need to let go of those things and trust in Jesus to save you. But for others of you. Like you believe in Jesus, but yet your whole life doesn't belong to him because you have these things that you hold on to and you trust in. And you think those things, whether it be wisdom, whether it be your control, whether it be your bank account, whatever it is that you think, that thing makes you feel safe. And you need to let that go. You need to let it go. Jesus said it is better for you to cut off your hand that your whole body be cast into hell. And so it is better for Jesus to take away something that is precious to you if it means you will finally wake up and put your trust in him. Sometimes the only way up to him is down. Sometimes he's got to humble us so much that we hit rock bottom, that we open our eyes and the only place we can look is up and finally see him. Stop looking and trusting in your things. Trust in him. Finally, 
true life, security, and peace is not found in ourselves or our stuff, but in the giver of all good gifts. True life, security, and peace is not found in ourselves or in our stuff, but in the giver of all gifts. The story doesn't end with Nebuchadnezzar still in the field acting like an animal. His kingdom is restored. He's got more now than he had before. But he doesn't trust in his stuff. The point of the story is not that God doesn't want you to have things. That's not the point. He doesn't say that he wants you to put all your trust and hope in him and don't have anything else. He wants you to put your security and trust in him and not in those other things. The Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. We are about to sing a song that says, my worth is not in what I own. But sometimes we think it is. Sometimes we sing greater than we believe. But we need to get it down in our minds and our hearts that our worth is not in what I own. My worth and my trust isn't in what I have. Your security, your hope can never be in yourself or your stuff. They're not powerful enough to hold you up. They only give the illusion of safety. The humble person rests not in what he has, but rests in the giver of all that he has. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to buy things. It's not wrong to have a big savings account. It's wrong to trust in those things, and it's wrong to hoard those things. So let us loosen our grip on that which makes you feel safe. Give it away. Give it away. Give so much away that it hurts a little bit. That's when you know you're really giving, really being generous. That it, You've got to sacrifice a little bit to give. If your giving doesn't make you sacrifice anything, you're not being radical in generosity. You're just doing the minimum required to make yourself feel better. Generosity requires sacrifice. The widow in the New Testament gives two pennies. But those pennies were all she had. And Jesus said she gave more than anybody else. We have to stop clinging to false security. Here's the problem. We can all lie to ourselves. We can all lie to ourselves and say, oh, I don't trust in my stuff. I trust in Jesus. And here's a good test to know if you do. Give a chunk of something away. Give a chunk of something away. Write a big check. Give something away. And, and, and wait and see if all the excuses start coming into your mind. I don't really need to do that because I know I trust Jesus. I don't have to do that test. What excuses will come into your mind? Say, well, you know, that's just really unwise at this time. It's not a good wise decision. All the excuses will come into your mind and it will expose where your trust really is. Everything you have is a gift from God. You know, like I tell my children, you own nothing. Daddy, that's mine. No, you own nothing. I own everything, and I let you play with my toys. That's my Barbie house, not yours. <laughs> and in the same way, God says to us, you own nothing. It's all mine, and I give it to you. I give it to you to use and to steward and to leverage for my kingdom. What are you doing with what God has given you? Are you trusting in, finding your security in, the gifts of God that are meant to be leveraged for good? Or are you trusting in the giver of the gifts, knowing that if you run out, he can give you more? I had a friend who was super generous, super generous all the time, always giving stuff away. And I asked him, man, how can you afford to do that? Like, how, how can you just, like, give money away so much? And he said, it's easy. It's just money. I make more every week. And that's been helpful for me. Everything you have is a gift. And God has been faithful to take care of you up to this point. What makes you think he's going to stop now? 
He's carried you along this far. Why is he going to stop now? Stop trusting in your stuff. Enjoy the gifts God has given you. Enjoy them to his glory. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, enjoy it. To do it all to the glory of God. Enjoy the gifts, but put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning that you are a good God who gives good gifts to children whom you love who are not deserving. God, we're thankful that you're kind to us when we don't deserve it. God, I think there are two, two of us in this room right now. There are those in this room who have never put their ultimate trust in you. Their ultimate trust is in something else. It's in themselves, it's in their finances, it's in worldly philosophy, it's in something. But it's not in you. God, would you show them the weak foundation that they've built their life on and that when the storms of life come that they will crumble. Would you show them that this morning that you are the only thing that they can build a life on, a foundation on that is secure and will not budge and will not move. God, this morning, would you show them all they've got to do is come place their faith and trust in you and that you would deliver them, save them, make them your children and keep them in your arms forever. And Father, for those in this room who they've, they've believed in you, they're saved, they've been baptized, they're members of this church, they, they're faithful followers of Jesus. God, would you help us to take inventory of our lives and to find those areas where our trust isn't in you but we're trusting in something else. We're trusting in our own personalities to get us ahead in life. We're trusting in our own ability to climb the corporate ladder. We're, we're trusting in our, in our bank account. We're trusting in something other than you. God, call us this morning to, to be radical in generosity with something. And help us to melt all those excuses away and to, to purge something, to show, prove to ourselves and to see that i got to stop trusting in this thing and trust in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you need to pray about any of that, I'm going to stand up here at the side as we sing. I'd love to pray with you, talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus or whatever you need. God, give us the courage to do as we must. In Christ's name we pray. All people say, let's stand together.